I've talked about UMI before, who were my favourite band in the 90s. So I was really looking forward to the June 1998 issue of Rolling Stone Australia magazine. Because UMI were onto their fourth album, which would be called the number four record. It came out in May of 1998, and I had heard that they were doing a long article for Rolling Stone. It would be their third number one album in a row in Australia, and their first since they were pretty much established as big stars. Rolling Stone had sent a journo over to Japan with the band to cover them as they supported Oasis. So in my mind, UMI, my favourite band ever, were bound to be on the cover. Just a few months earlier, Rolling Stone had put Regurgitator on the cover, and UMI were bigger than Regurgitator. It was a no-brainer, according to my 17-year-old brain. Then I finally saw the cover. June 1998's issue of Rolling Stone Australia featured Jack Nicholson on the cover. Jack fucking Nicholson. This was six months after his last film, As Good As It Gets, had come out. On the bottom left-hand corner of the issue was a small pic of Tim Rogers from UMI as some sort of consolation. I was kind of irrationally angry for weeks. I still, to this day, am kind of annoyed at latter-day Jack Nicholson. And he didn't need the leg up. He didn't need the exposure of being on the cover of a magazine. And was old, crusty Jack Nicholson in 1998 seriously going to sell more copies of Rolling Stone than UMI, who at the time had the number one album in Australia? The battle to give Australian music some column inches and exposure on the magazine racks is a long one. And it's one that came to a head in 1993, when a new magazine was born that was supposed to give Australian music the rack space it deserved. It is yet another story of walkouts, friendships breaking, lawsuits, arguments over what was alternative, the value of Australian music, some nudity, and people going broke. You know, the 90s. So welcome to Just Ace, a podcast about the 90s Australian alternative music scene, whatever the hell that means. In this episode, we look at Juice Magazine, a new serious magazine for rock writing, very much tied to this scene, and how it tried to take on the big brother in Rolling Stone, Australia. The entertainment and media industry in Australia is unique in that we are a pretty big country by size, but we have a very small population, yet we speak English. That small population means we can only support and make a small amount of stuff. We can't make anywhere near the number of books, TV shows or music that bigger countries can make, like the UK or the US. But because we speak English, there's no barrier for us to understand that stuff either. And there is so much of it. The reality is, if we just stopped making Australian TV shows, there'd be more than enough TV to entertain us and we would never get bored. Of course, that's not the point. We need to make Australian TV shows, Australian music and Australian media to tell our own stories, reflect our own culture and capture our own history. That's why it's so important that institutions like Screen Australia or the Australian Council for the Arts get strong funding. This helps TV, film and music. Magazines aren't included in that. And magazines dealt with this influx of overseas English-speaking magazines in a different way. For decades, big international magazines were imported into Australia. But of course, those magazines had no Australian content. So someone clever decided to license the magazine brand and make Australian editions of international magazines. 
These magazines would have some Australian content under a more famous name, as well as many pages from the international versions. They would be printed locally, and probably most importantly, feature local advertisers. Some of the first Australian editions of famous magazines included the Australian version of Time magazine, which started in 1949, and the Australian version of Vogue, which started in 1959. There were many Australian versions of famous magazines that followed, such as GQ, L, Empire, and much, much more. In the music world, Rolling Stone Australia launched in 1972. The American version was only three years old when publisher Philip Fraser secured the Australian rights. Fraser is an Australian music publishing pioneer, and he had already started Go Set in 1966, widely regarded as the first music specialist publication in Australia. The first Australian Rolling Stone had Jerry Garcia on the cover, some local ads, and just one page about Australian news. It was picked up in 1974 by a group made up of Paul Gardner, Paul Comrie Thompson, and Jane Matheson. Gardner would later set up factory records in Australia and play a role in the start of Volition Records. Under the second regime, Rolling Stone Australia put out their first Australian cover. It was Skyhooks in 1976, the same band that Double J first played when they launched in 1975 to show how different they were from the mainstream. By the mid-70s, the magazine was a huge success and featured some of the best Australian music writing available. But they weren't the only ones. Rock Australia magazine, which everyone called Ram because that's a way cooler name, was founded by Anthony O'Grady in 1975. Unlike Rolling Stone, it was all local content and most of it was originally written by O'Grady. Duke also started in 1975 by Ed Nimivol, which was based in Melbourne and gave a different slant to the very Sydney-based Ram. Both Nimivol and O'Grady had worked at GoSet. Along with these locally printed titles, Australia was flooded by import magazines as well. By the 80s, you could get all the British ones like GQ, Select and The Enemy, as well as the American ones like Rolling Stone and Spin. But the thing was, they took months to get to Australia. To keep the costs down for casual news agency customers, these mags were shipped by sea. It's okay, it wasn't like it was competing with the internet. In Australia, you had little choice but to read about bands two or three months after the story ran in the UK or the US. There was one way around it. Some news agencies, but also a lot of indie record stores, would air freight magazines and get them in in just a week or two. They would cost quite a bit more, but that was the price of being ahead of the curve. It was another reason independent record stores were cool. As a teenager, I remember shelling out a few extra bucks for import copies of cool magazines. Along with the burgeoning street press scene, which I talked about in episode 7, and a healthy culture of fanzines of varying quality, this was what serious music writing looked like in Australia up until the early 90s. But there were other types of music writings on the stands. The teen magazine. They were a relatively new format that started in the 70s in Britain, exemplified by smash hits. But the format really rose to power during the rise of pop in the 80s. An Australian version of Smash Hits started in 1984, with a mix of Australian pop stars, soap opera stars, alongside UK content, all stapled together. That teen market had other titles like Hit Song Words, which started in 1988, but Smash Hits was by far the king. Those were the magazines where I first discovered music writing. I remember reading about Ratcat or Frente or other similar bands in teen magazines like Smash Hits. 
Those so-called alternative bands were right next to Vanilla Ice and Boys to Men. For me, it was all the same. An alternative was just another genre like rap or rock or whatever the hell KLF were doing. It was fine for me, but for those alternative bands, they wanted to be taken more seriously. There was a difference between Ratcat and New Kids on the Block. At least it was to Ratcat. Smash Hits magazine has its place, and let's face it, its place wasn't hard-hitting music journalism. It wasn't going to put the music in context. It was chart stuff and teen stuff and TV stuff and song lyrics and posters and big glossy pictures. So there was this divide between mainstream and alternative like everywhere else at the start of the 90s. So yes, it was a problem, but it was one that people were working on. Because in the early 90s, Australian music magazines would go through a big upheaval, just like the rest of the music industry. Age-old issues would come to a head. Issues that were brewing at Rolling Stone Australia. In 1987, Rolling Stone Australia was taken over by three friends who loved music but had no publishing experience. Toby Creswell was a school friend of Philip Keir and his wife, Elisabel Verhagen. By the early 90s, Rolling Stone Australia was looking good. It was in a traditional magazine size with full-colour glossy pages. Also, Ram, Duke and others had fallen away by the early 90s, giving Rolling Stone Australia the market pretty much all to themselves. But that wouldn't last. Like with Triple J when they fired a lot of DJs, and I discussed it in episode 1, and the street press on the street where the entire staff just walked out one day, as I discussed in episode 7, the killer of Rolling Stone Australia was already in the building. Toby Creswell had written for many music publications in Australia in the 80s, including Rolling Stone. He loved the magazine and he never really thought he would one day own a piece of it. So taking over as Rolling Stone's editor when he bought it was a good fit, especially as he could use it as a platform to talk about the Australian music that he loved so much. As the 90s started, Rolling Stone Australia was the best place to read longer articles about Australian bands. Long features on The Go-Betweens, Midnight Oil, Crowded House, In Excess and more could be found in these pages. There was at least the odd review or mention of the burgeoning alternative side of Australian music as well. But there was one place that Australian music wasn't working for Rolling Stone, and that was on the cover. American rock band Dr. Hook sang about making the cover of the Rolling Stone in a song in 1972. And it makes sense. Making the cover of Rolling Stone was a sign of making it. It was a gift of a huge platform, but also the cover of Rolling Stone gave you this aura of cool. In the 2000 film Almost Famous, the fictional band in that film, Stillwater, are trying to make themselves interesting enough to get on the cover of Rolling Stone. That's kind of the plot of that film. Thing was, covers sell magazines, and Australian covers weren't selling. They put Guns N' Roses or Tom Cruise on the cover and the magazine sold plenty. When they put some Australians on the cover, sales dipped. The old adage of not judging a book by its cover doesn't work in magazines where all you really get to do is see a cover before you make up your mind. At the start of 1992, Creswell put three Australians on the cover in the space of six months. There had only been two Australian covers in all of 1991. The 1992 covers were Jenny Morris, who I know is actually New Zealand, but is still not an imported American cover, which is the point, Australian guitar heartthrob Johnny Diesel, and the hardish rock band Baby Animals. But they sold badly compared to other covers which included megastars like Michael Jackson and Nirvana. But it's not like those Australian artists were huge stars anyway. Even in Australia they didn't outsell Michael Jackson or Nirvana. 
but Creswell was there to push Australian music, but the numbers weren't adding up. A philosophical divide was emerging amongst the three friends that had acquired Rolling Stone, which was how much American content to put in versus how much Australian content to support, inside and on the cover. I'm sure no one wanted to support American content for the sake of it, but I'm sure the numbers showed that the American stars sold magazines, and not writing about local bands kept the costs down. On the other hand, smash hits were putting Australian teen stars on the cover all the time, and then there was this boom of Australian alternative bands growing all around them. And if you don't promote them, who will? Somewhere along the line, that philosophical divide became an ocean. There were also arguments about how things operated, how much money was available, and how much people were paid. Creswell felt unappreciated and him and Philip Keir stopped talking. Ultimately, in September 1992, Creswell was fired by Rolling Stone Australia to his surprise. In a sign of how far the two school friends had fallen out, Creswell was marched out under the eye of building security. But Creswell got the last laugh. For Hagen, who at this point had divorced from Keir, led a walkout just days after. Most of the rest of the senior staff also left. And all those people got together and started a new magazine. In March of 1993, six months after leaving Rolling Stone, Creswell and Verhagen started a new venture. Along with now former Rolling Stone editor John O'Donnell, they founded the independent publishing company Terraplan. The flagship of the company was a new magazine called Juice. The name was chosen when, at one point, it was going to be a partnership with Triple J. But in the end, it was independent. Juice magazine made no bones about being a challenger to Rolling Stone. It looked like Rolling Stone with its large glossy format. It was the same mix of music, film, politics and culture. They even did a deal with Rolling Stone America's biggest competitor, Spin, to license content to the new magazine. It's a surprise that the first issue of Juice wasn't just the words, Fuck you, Rolling Stone, repeated over 200 pages. Not that the first issue was smooth sailing. There was, of course, lawsuits to try and get the magazine stopped. Most of the writers had to choose sides. Starting up a new publishing company without huge funding was difficult, and in the first few years of Juice, the hours were long and it was a struggle. Then there was the first cover. There were internal disagreements about what to put on the front of issue one. A big overseas name like U2 or Nirvana would sell copies and get the new magazine on a solid footing. But Creswell wanted something Australian to set the scene. What he chose in the end was Aussie rocker Jimmy Barnes. Jimmy Barnes was a huge star in Australia in the 80s. He was one of the few Australian artists big enough to compete with the Michael Jacksons. What's curious about that first ever cover of Juice magazine is how Jimmy Barnes is framed. The cover of the first issue of Juice featured the big headline, Jimmy Barnes Goes Grunge. Now, I love Jimmy Barnes. As the singer in Cold Chisel, he is the voice of several of my favourite songs ever. And out of all the members of Cold Chisel, he seemed the nicest, the most accessible, and the one who would sign autographs and give you a high five. After Cold Chisel broke up, he had some big solo albums, and his songs were all over the radio. But grunge, he was not. His last album at that point was 1991's Soul Deep, an album of soul covers. One of the singles was a duet with John Farnham. His 1993 album Heat isn't one of his best or most loved, and he's on the Heat album cover with an electric guitar looking rock. Jimmy Barnes is not a guitar player. He performed Lover Lover on the 1996 ARIA Awards, and he had an electric guitar that he strummed a couple of times. 
And when he did, he got the chord shapes right, but he was holding them on the wrong part of the guitar. Like I said, I love Jimmy Barnes, but he wasn't remotely grunge. But I guess this was 1993, and it was all about being rock. Guitars were in. Added to this long bow of grunge was the way the cover looked. It was a psychedelic neon green, and it looked like a tumbleweed or silverchair film clip. Have I mentioned how much I love Jimmy Barnes? Look, I do, but I'm not sure he's ever heard of Mudhoney. The cover says a lot about the era. In 1993, you'd probably be mad to not shoehorn the word grunge on the cover of every issue of your magazine. And as much as Creswell wanted to cover Australian music and give it the right spotlight, he probably couldn't predict it would be at a time when a bunch of alternative bands were coming through under the shadow of Nirvana. The Jimmy Barnes cover of issue one of Juice looks funny from many decades distance. Still, Creswell later said it was a highlight in his long career. He had started a serious music magazine with an Australian artist on the cover of issue one. And that was just the start. Juice magazine would run several more Australian covers in those early years. More conventional was issue two with Midnight Oil on the cover. There was no proclamation that Midnight Oil had gone Britpop as a headline this time. Two Australian artists were followed by Evan Dando of the Lemonheads in issue three. But that lead article tied very closely with Sydney's Half a Cow record label, Nick Dalton, and that band's Australian connection. The cover was also an original photo shoot with Evan Dando, not a purchased photo. And Simon Day of Ratcat was part of the photo shoot and the interview inside. It took them until issue four when they caved and bought a photo for the cover of the American living riff, Lenny Kravitz. Issue five featured another Australian artist and one of the most notorious Juice magazine covers. This time it was Angie Hart of Frente, a year on from Marvin the Album. The band at the time were desperate to play down their quirky image, so Hart posed semi-nude on the cover, save for a strategically placed necklace. It was a controversial cover, one that helped to bring more notoriety to the magazine in that first year. Inside the interview with Angie, she talked about sex and drugs. In fact, all these music magazines would have these occasionally sexy covers and allude to illicit topics. Juice would do it again with pop singer Denny Hines a couple of years later. And if it helps, they objectified men too. I mean, Evan Dander was essentially naked on the cover of issue three. Terence Trent Darby was naked, covered by a fig leaf on issue six. So in their first six months of Juice magazine, they had three Australians and three naked people. Did I mention that covers sell magazines? And hey, it was sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But it's not like they never played to the cheap seats either. Madonna, Pearl Jam, U2, Nirvana, they all made Juice magazine covers in those early years. But they also put Yothu Yindi on the cover. Issue nine of Juice magazine in January 1994 featured Australian First Nations band Yothu Yindi, who also played the very first big day out. And like I mentioned, later they had black Australian pop singer, Denny Hines. Small revolutions, but moves in the right direction. Still, I'm not sure how much Juice really won the argument about being a music and culture mag that reflected more Australian content than Rolling Stone. They did about as well as Rolling Stone in the end, or perhaps Juice dragged them along. Or the scene got so healthy that Rolling Stone just followed the trend. A month after Creswell was fired, Rolling Stone Australia put an Australian artist on the cover, 80s rockers, hunters and collectors. I don't know for sure, but it feels like a bit of a burn. Rolling Stone got a new editor in Kathy Bale, who came from an independent publishing background. She wasn't the music obsessive that Creswell was, 
but believed in making the magazine distinctively Australian and had a desire to match the quality of the US edition. She also wanted to do more than music, which is kind of where Rolling Stone in the US was going anyway. She did so brilliantly in her first year. In the same month as Juice Magazine number one, Rolling Stone Australia had their most iconic cover ever in March of 1993. It was a cover with then Prime Minister Paul Keating. It was Bale's first commissioned cover story. It's an iconic photo shoot as it has Paul Keating staring over a pair of Ray-Ban sunglasses. As much as Keating was a relative showboat compared to his predecessors, those sunglasses weren't actually his. They were one of a few props provided by the photographer Laurie Graham. They also had some music instruments on hand and took the photos at the Ashfield Hotel where Keating would go and see bands in his younger years. A shot with Paul Keating holding an electric guitar was considered for the cover. I wonder if they would have ran the headline, Paul Keating Goes Brunch. It's an extremely low bar, but even without an electric guitar, no Australian Prime Minister has ever looked so rock and roll. He was the first and only Australian Prime Minister to appear on the cover of Rolling Stone. I attended an election party once, many years later, and they had that photo of Keating in the background, along with austere portraits of previous Prime Ministers. An American friend asked me who was the guy in the sunglasses. How do you explain Paul Keating to an American? I also once saw a person at a market with that Rolling Stone cover on a t-shirt. I mean, I've never seen another Rolling Stone Australia or Juice magazine cover on a t-shirt. It's probably the most iconic image to come out of Australian music writing. Yet another left-field Australian cover in Bale's first year was TV presenter Andrew Denton. And then inside the magazine, they covered other Australians like political writer Bob Ellis or features on right-wing gangs. They still backed it up with plenty of great music writing about the local scene. Midnight Oil and In Excess also had early covers in Bale's editorial years. And they still had plenty of nude people on the cover as well, including Janet Jackson and Cindy Crawford. Probably most controversial was a photo shoot of Dyed Pretty's Ron Pino, completely nude, that was inside a 1993 issue. You can see his penis and everything. So let's not get too far up that prestige journalism high ground. The success of Juice and just the existence of two magazines of this type says a lot about how this was a golden period with more than enough to go around. In a lot of ways, Juice did a lot by just turning up. Rolling Stone Australia was number one, but they were far from sacred. Juice showed that competition could be sustained and build a healthy scene. And both were essentially independent publishers. Neither were owned by a billionaire with a media empire. Also, give credit to the Juice founders for not just being Australian spin. They could have taken the easy way out, but they decided to launch something new, which is never easy. They did it to support Australian music. I was maybe too deep into it, but I know people who preferred Juice back in the day because they were more Australian. And hey, perception matters, and covers sell magazines. Before the internet and with music experiencing such a boom, the magazine scene in Australia flourished in the mid to late 90s. It wasn't just Juice and Rolling Stone. It seemed to me that there were new Australian music magazines all the time. There was a music mag called Hot Metal, an Australian title that started the decade covering the Metallicas and the Aerosmiths of the world. Even they would start featuring Australian artists like Tumbleweed on the cover. There was one cover that featured a bunch of Australian acts like Scream Feeder, Spiderbait and UMI. They were joined by Massive, which ran for a few years in the late 90s, with lots of Australian music coverage. 
Triple J and Recovery would launch their own magazines in the 90s. There were probably others. They would appear for a year or two and then they'd fall away. Then there were the more niche titles like Australian Guitar Magazine, which featured many local artists alongside American guitar heroes. They put Tim Rogers on the cover, which I bought straight away. They also ran covers with Chris Cheney from The Living End, Daniel Johns and many others. Compared to how things were in the early 90s, when Ratcat was stuck in Teen Idol mags and had nowhere else to go, Australian bands by the late 90s had Rolling Stone Australia, Juice and every niche under the sun. And here, the writing was good. The writers were paid and often they were the best music writers in Australia. People like John O'Donnell, who was the first editor of Juice. Toby Creswell often wrote for the magazine he edited. Craig Matheson was here, who wrote several great books about Australian music. Stuart Coop, who wrote even more books than Craig. And Jeff Apter, who has written more books about Australian music than almost all of them combined. David Nichols, who edited Smash Hits and wrote the definitive history of the go-betweens, also wrote for these music mags. And Jack Marks, who ended the 90s with one of the most controversial books on Australian music called Sorry, chronicling his search for the Easy Beat singer Stevie Wright, also cut his teeth in this magazine world. Then there was John Birmingham. He's best known for his book He Died With A Falafel In His Hand. He was always one of my favourites and his stories always covered the culture of what was happening in young Australia. He also pivoted at writing the best history book about Australia I've ever read. It's called Leviathan, the unauthorised biography of Sydney, and you'll never look at Sydney the same again. My favourite Australian music writer, Clinton Walker, was one of the few people who wrote for Rolling Stone and Juice. He also wrote the definitive book on Australian music in the 80s called Stranded. The cover of Stranded featured a semi-nude Ron Pino from that same Rolling Stone Australia photo shoot that showed me his penis. I remember the book and people asking me what the hell I was reading. It was difficult to explain it was just a book about rock history when a naked Ron Pino was on it. Walker followed it up with the secret history of Australian indigenous country music called Buried Country. Looking at the bylines in rock mags in the mid-90s from the future, it was mostly men who got the big features. But there were lots of women there too, especially behind the scenes. Rolling Stone hired another female editor after Bale, who was Alyssa Blake. Of the writers, there was also cult author Linda Javen. Editor Samantha Trenoworth co-wrote a book about prominent Australians with Creswell. Other great writers like Samantha Clode, Bronwyn Thompson and Kelsey Monroe worked and wrote for these pages. I spoke to a lot of people about this and they all tell me that the magazines weren't a boys club, especially compared to other parts of the music industry. But it was maybe just the male writers were more visible, more likely to hang out at gigs with bands and tell people that they were the writers. The women had no such professional insecurities. Of course, at the end of the day, I wasn't buying these magazines for the writers. It was the bands. Full colour photos of the men and women making the music I love, and the stories behind these people and the music they made. It was not just posed photos and approved interviews overseen by record company PR people. There was the strange, candid, random notes section in Rolling Stone. It was a glimpse of the music industry and the parties and gigs that I was too young to go to. There was the news. It's so strange to think of how hard it was to get music news back in the day. Sometimes it was just a snippet that says that a new album was coming from a band that I loved. Sometimes there would even be a photo of the band in a studio. I obsessed over a photo of you and I in the studio with some bloke named Lee Ronaldo from some band called Sonic Youth. Again, before the internet, it was all you would ever see of this stuff. 
And before camera phones, photos of bands in the studio were super rare. Nowadays, bands live stream from the recording studio. There was so much to find in these pages, like album reviews. I personally didn't take them too seriously, but many bands certainly did. A good review you could take to heart. A bad review? Well, there are some musicians that have never forgiven writers that gave them a bad review in a national magazine. I guess it showed that the reviews mattered, at least. But the best was the interviews. This was where you'd get to know the bands. They would talk about their childhoods, or their music, or their touring, or their feelings. This was the stories and the context that made up the music I loved. Something the bands a couple of years earlier, like Clouds, Hummingbirds, Ratcat, wished they could have had. The best of the best was when they had bands interview other bands. Like reading Tim Rogers' interview Tex Perkins, or Evan Dando with Simon Day, or Nick Cave and Grant McLennan. Sometimes a journalist would get exclusive access. You know, like that time Rolling Stone went to Japan to cover UMI Support Oasis. And before the internet, there was no YouTube footage of the gig, no social media pics. The closest I would get to that moment was that article, which I would read and the footage would play in my mind. And it was a magical moment that for some reason didn't deserve to be on the cover of that issue. I, of course, bought what I could and read them all. Not just Juice and Rolling Stone, but Q and Mojo and Record Collector, whatever. I discovered so much. Before smartphones, I would go to places with a couple of rock magazines in my school bag. I would be excited to go to the airport for whatever reason, because they had the best imported magazines. And look, if you've ever visited any of the places where I lived during my 20s and beyond, there was probably a magazine rack in the toilet. Rolling Stone and Juice were both in good health at the end of the 90s. Circulation for both magazines were high, and they were benefiting from a growing music industry as well. Both launched websites in the late 90s offering chat rooms and snippets of music. And of course, the internet came and swept it all away. Juice magazine ended in 2003. It died when the publisher tried to get the jump on the digital boom. By then, they had expanded to several more magazines. They sold the company to a tech business looking to pivot into being a digital publishing powerhouse. This was before even the iTunes store launched in Australia, and most of us were using Netscape, and even MySpace was mostly unheard of. But it didn't work, and it all fell apart. Rolling Stone Australia changed hands several more times over the next few decades. It did fine, but the internet didn't really help it either. There were long periods where there was no Rolling Stone Australia. It was bought out again in 2019 by the people who run Bragg, the latest caretakers of the prestigious brand. And guess what? So far, their first few issues have had nothing but Australians on the cover. I'll say my usual piece about lost history. I remember a lot of the articles that I read in those magazines, even 20 or 30 years later. It's a shame it's not online or readily accessible. I don't know who owns the rights and if writers have any claims to getting paid if they do. The owners of Juice are a huge multinational who probably has no idea they even own the stuff. As usual, the State Library of New South Wales and probably other states hold copies of most of the music magazines released in Australia, from before the 90s like Ram and Juke, all through the 90s stuff and much more. I spent a lot of time at the State Library reading them. Aren't libraries wonderful? And for a scene with a lot of writers, I'm surprised there's no great written histories of Australian rock magazines. The closest is the website of music writer Clinton Walker, who more than anyone has tried to capture the history of music writing in this country. I'll link to his wonderful website in the show notes. 
I'll also link to some of my favourite books on Australian music from many of the writers that I've talked about in this episode. Sometime in the late 90s, I got to meet Doug Thomas, founder of Greasy Pop, one of the great indie labels in Australia in the 80s, and one of the few great labels from Adelaide. But I didn't know that at the time, I was just a friend of his daughter's. But he had a complete collection of Mojo magazines. It was like those living rooms that had a complete National Geographic magazine collection, but way more rock and roll. There was something about a home with a full collection of magazines that really touched a nerve in me. Call it immigrant guilt, but magazines on a bookshelf seemed impossibly intellectual. And it took me 15 years or so after meeting Doug, but I finally own every issue of Mojo Magazine myself. Of course these days, magazines are in trouble. They still make a few great music magazines in the UK where magazine buying is more normal. In Australia, I have no idea if we will even have magazines in a few years, and even if we don't, if anyone will miss them. I often walk into places that are called newsagents that don't stock any magazines at all. And if I don't miss the paper, I miss great long-form rock writing. I don't know where the next generation of Australian music writers are learning their long-form craft. But in the end, I just like music magazines. I always have, and I still do. I just always thought that if you're walking down the street and you sing someone and they have a music magazine under their arm, that was cool. As an aside, in 2003, in its last year of publishing, Juice Magazine did a list of the 50 greatest Australian albums. It was really one of the first lists that helped put the work of 90s bands in Australia into any sort of historical context. I remember being thrilled to see albums that I love finally gaining some critical and historical perspective. I mean, I didn't think that at the time, I just liked seeing the music that I love being included on a list. But of course, 2003 was too soon to really see the 90s for what it was. There really aren't many of these lists. In the UK, it's almost a monthly event that some music mag will do a countdown of the best ever British albums. Every British music fan of any age knows the key texts for their country, be it Joy Division, Smiths, Blur or whatever. In Australia, really good lists of so-called best Australian songs or albums could be counted on two hands. So it's worth looking at these lists, and let's start with the Juice list from 2003. But three 80s Australian albums by three huge 80s Australian bands make up the top three. From one to three, they are ACDC's Back in Black, Cold Chisel's East, and Midnight Oil's 10 to 1. Australian music in the 80s still looms so large in our culture. But 18 of the 50 albums from the list were from the 90s. 13 of the 18, I would say, would fit into the story of alternative music. The high amount of 90s albums show how ingrained Juice were to the 90s and how much they were part of this scene. I'll link to the full list in the show notes, but here are the top five from the 90s Australian alternative music scene, whatever the hell that means, that made the Juice magazine list. So the fifth highest at number 30 is Doughboy Hollow by Diet Pretty. The fourth highest at number 20 is Two Plank by Regurgitator. The third highest and 15th on the list is The Low Road by Beasts of Bourbon. The second highest, and technically not a 90s album, but some songs were released in 1999 and was released in 2000, is Odyssey No. 5 at number 9. And according to Juice Magazine, the highest ranking Australian 90s alternative album, and coming in at number 8 in the overall list, is Hi-Fi Way by UMI. There's another really good one that I love, written by Toby Creswell, John O'Donnell and Craig Matheson, 
It's called the 100 Best Australian Albums, and they later updated it to the much less mathematically pleasing 110 Best Australian Albums. It's a much more varied list than the Juice one, but it's also longer. Lots of albums from all eras and lots of great 90s albums that fall out of the alternative remit. I'll link to the book in the show notes, but here are the top 5 90s Australian alternative albums that made the 110 best Australian albums list. Look, just follow along. Fifth highest at number 58 is Underground Lovers with Leave Me Blind. Fourth highest at number 46 is Odyssey number 5 by Powderfinger. Third highest and at number 28 is Regurgitator's Unit. Second highest and at number 25 is Neon Ballroom by Silverchair. And the highest ranking alternative Australian 90s album on the list and the only one to make the top 20 and coming in at number 8 is Hi-Fi Way by UMI. And finally, one last list. Rolling Stone Australia had a special issue in 2021 listing the 200 greatest Australian albums of all time. Topping the list again is 80s mega albums like ACDC's Black in Black, In Excess's Kick, John Farnham's Whispering Jack, Cold Chisel's East and Midnight Oil's Diesel and Dust. That's an all-80s top five. But I'm going to list just the top 90s alternative albums. Here's the top five. At number 18 overall, and at number five, is Internationalist by Powderfinger. At number 16 overall, and number four, is Odyssey number five by Powderfinger. At number 14 overall, and number three, is Unit by Regurgitator. At number 11 overall, and at number two, is Owly Daily by UMI. And at number 6 overall, and the number 1 Australian 90s alternative album is Frog Stomp by Silverchair. Thanks for listening and welcome to the end bit. The bit where I talk about support and what all those links in the description do. I've talked about a couple of the paid options in previous episodes. They're super important, but this week let me talk about one of the best ways to support me that has no cost. And that's to leave the podcast a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps with discoverability. When you search for stuff, having lots of good reviews means I come up higher in search results. And then that means I come up higher on Google and other directories. I'm not doing this to make money. I'm mainly doing this because I don't want some of the amazing stories I know to be just forgotten and to die. And the more that I can make an impact on internet algorithms, the more this stuff will hopefully stay on the internet and be remembered. I think you can just leave five stars, but I do read the reviews as well. I think it's really the only way to leave the podcast a review, apart from, hey, emailing me and telling me what you think. Plenty of comments have made me laugh. A lot have been embarrassing, but thank you. Links to Patreon, Buy Me A Pony and Redbubble are also in the description. And hey, don't forget to share the posts on social media and simply tell a friend. Follow along on all the social medias. I'm at JustAce90s, which is JustAce90s, just about everywhere. And there's a mailing list now as well. There's a link in the description below. Okay, next week, we look at the most important music list in Australia, the Triple J Hottest 100. <laughs>